Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, objects have been flying all over North America above us, and so far it's happened four times in the last couple of weeks. What do we know so far? Well, we'll update that for you. Toronto Mayor John Tory says he is resigning after an inappropriate relationship with a staff member. Do we have any right to know or judge the personal lives of politicians? And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini in Washington. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, look up, way up. Yep, there it is, another Russian balloon. or No, this time maybe a Chinese balloon. We're not quite sure exactly where they are coming from right now, but... Four times in the last couple of weeks now, objects flying over North America in airspace have been spotted and shot down. Uh, one this past weekend over Tobermory, uh, which is rather odd, uh, given you know what most of these were over in the West Coast, well, at least where they started anyway. Uh, once the debris is collected, we're told the work is going to begin to find out just where they did come from. Global's Tina Trajani has the latest for us. The safety of Canadians is our number one priority, and that's why I made the decision to shoot down the object. This is being taken very seriously. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says there is still a lot to learn about this object shot down over central Yukon on Saturday. He'll be meeting with the territory's premier later today. This was something scheduled ahead of time, but this latest object in the sky will no doubt play a big role in their sit-down. Recovery efforts are underway in the wilderness for the remnants of this object. Now, it's not clear who sent it or the purpose, but it is suspected to be from China in a surveillance mission. This is the third of four high-altitude objects shot down over North American airspace over the last week, the latest over Lake Huron yesterday. Defense Minister Anita Anand has said the Yukon object was potentially similar to the Chinese spy balloon destroyed February 4th, which was followed by the second mystery object shot down over Alaska on Friday. Tina Trajani, Global News. So what's going on here? Uh, this has certainly taken center stage over the uh, the discussion or the debate, I guess it was, about this new health care deal anyway. Uh, to uh, give us the sense of what's happening in the uh, nation's capital right now, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. Thanks for having me. What do you think of all the stuff that's going on? This has been a very weird week. I mean, we saw the one incident, of course, the one that flew right across uh, the North American continent that got shot down. Uh, Tobermory, the Yukon. Uh, what's going on here? Is this uh, the invasion of, of something or other here? We, we don't even know exactly where these things are coming from, do we? No. I mean, that's the weird part of it is that right now it just seems like, you know, we're being told, look, we've we've got our eyes open, we've got this under control, we're working with the US, but we don't really know what's going on or what this is about. And so it's it's weird. Like it just feels very strange. And it the the kind of we have to wait and see as the government figures this out and does some examination of whatever debris they can find. I mean, it's just, you know, you don't know whether this is something to be concerned about or something not to be concerned about. Well, and we we know we spy on them, they spy on us. I mean, that's exactly. been going on for years. But I think most of us were, I don't know if we're comfortable with it, but at least aware of the fact that, yeah, they've got satellites that can look right over my shoulder right now at the page I'm reading from right now if they want to. Uh, why are they using balloons? It just seems like it's a, it's a throwback to like 19th century of, you know, spy versus spy. That's it. And I mean, it, it, it's absolutely true. Of course, we, you know, they spy, we spy. That's part of keeping, you know, whatever security and peace we can keep. We need to understand what, what the weapons development is. We need to understand what the intelligence development is. And to be honest, you know, like being secure about our transactions, our data, like that's part of our daily life because because of the knowledge that we're we're all spying and people are spying on us. But when you get like a kind of physical, you know, like this, this giant thing that needs to be shot down, that's sort of, 
it's it's kind of in your face, right? Like it's not yeah. the kind of thing that you you know it's happening and you know that you know that's it's possible for people to be spying on what you're doing on your computer and your phone and you can you know you you just can be smart about how you're you're doing your daily business but this seems to be very on the nose like this is very much like we've got you know it's what if this is spyware that this is a, a spy thing then it's it's just floating in the sky in a way that's that's physical and that requires this kind of response I, the reason I find it so bizarre, well, among many, I suppose, uh, is, as you say, it's it's old technology that they're using. And, yeah, they want to get data. They want to get information. But as we mentioned, they've got satellites. We already know that there are Chinese scientists, military scientists, working in Canadian universities on, on you know, projects that are probably very, you know, sensitive. So why, why even do something like this? Is, or is it really just kind of a slap in the face to say, see, we can do this anytime we want? Yeah, I mean, it has that kind of feel to it, given the the physicality of it. And it, the, I saw too that I think this I think this is right. I, I saw something on Twitter saying that the Chinese government has also said, "Oh, we've we've detected some spyware. We're going to be shooting like a balloon. We're going to be shooting that down, an identified flying object." And so you, you wonder: is there a game being played here? And as you say, is there a sense that look, we can do this, and we're just going to, you know rub your nose in it, sort of thing? But this is going to come back to. You know, with respect to how the government responds to it, if this keeps happening, especially people are going to be like, all right, what the heck is going on here? And why, you know, when did we find out about this? Why didn't we act more quickly? Why didn't we know about this? What did the U.S. know? And so it'll be an interesting time for uh, I'm sure it'll be a topic of conversation when Biden comes in March, for example. Well, and uh, yeah, but to, to understand maybe exactly why they're doing it, are you surprised that, that Canada seems to be involved in this in some way, shape, or form? I mean, this sounds like the sort of thing that would go on, say, between China and the United States. Uh, are we just in the way with them right now? It's, it seems as if they're directing these things over Canada. Well, yeah, the north of the country and, yeah. uh, you know, the, the defense and, and security of Canada's north has long been, uh, you know, a very prickly issue in this country. And so that's going to be part of the conversation. I think, you know, we, you're right, like the, geographically, if this is some if this is a dynamic that's essentially happening between the U.S. and China, um, we could be some sort of a kind of geographic pawn in that we could be it's just that we're we we happen to be where we are but it could be it could be something more much more complicated than that and so i think like there'll be a lot of pressure on the government to show how we're working with the u.s to to be involved in a response in this but it just it's frustrating to hear and that's it that's not the government's fault it's well maybe it is i don't know but it's when you hear this messaging around like look we're not sure yet we're going to have to figure this out It'll be interesting to see what line the conservatives take on this in the House of Commons and what kinds of pressure, the questions that they put forward on this, whether they pick this up at all or, you know, which would be maybe a bit of a distraction from their line on on um, cost of living or, yeah, we'll, we'll see what the conservatives do with it too. That surprised me. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, we're not hearing from the the opposition parties on this. Uh, I mean, mm. this is an ongoing story. It's not just okay. It happened yesterday. It's been going on for about a week now, yes. and and I've heard nothing from Mr. Polyev or Mr. Singer or anyone on the other side of the benches. Well, yeah, and this was like the defense of Canada's north was a big deal for Harper. And yeah. it was, you know, this is something that I would anticipate that conservatives would pick up on as a matter of national security, as a matter of, as you know, even I can see them driving at the government competence line. Like, when did you know about this? Why did you did not act sooner? Like, you know, what else do we know? What are we doing with do support the U.S. and in the, the broader scheme of things? 
And so, but I, I think it, it, there's so much going on right now. It's interesting to see what the opposition picks up, like whether they pick up, you know, even the healthcare thing, for example, like Polya basically said, yeah, look, if he, if when I am prime minister, I will continue this lousy deal and I might even add more money to it. So it's, it's interesting to see what they pick up on because anything, you know, they, they might really want to kind of keep the focus on this cost of living issue and put it to that basically every time there's a cost go up, it's trust and Trudeau's fault. And so they may choose to stick that line or they may want to branch out of it. Let's swing over to the healthcare deal. It was last Tuesday, of course, the prime minister met with the premiers and they hammered this out. It's not a deal yet. It's really just a proposal that's on the table. Uh, they all already seem to be putting an optimistic face on this. You know, we're very close to getting this thing done. And uh, then I saw Dominic LeBlanc over the weekend. He was on the the, the political shows on Sunday morning. Uh, the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, basically saying, look, if this thing fails, it's all on the provinces. We've thrown all the money at them that they want or that they need. Uh, and it's going to be, if, if this doesn't go down, if we don't hit the targets that we're shooting for here, blame the premiers for it. That doesn't sound like he's building bridges there. <laughs> no. And I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that kind of message from him. Like, look, I, I think that this healthcare deal, such as it is, is is nowhere what the provinces wanted, but they need the money, so they have to take it. But it's in two different chunks, right? Like there's going to be a, a bit of an add-on to the Canada health transfer, which is a per capita transfer. And that's as long as they do what the feds want them to do on data collection. They We all knew that. I don't think that's going to be a big issue. The issue is going to be how the federal government is going to negotiate bilateral deals with each premier. And so I don't know that he's going to get 100% agreement on, you know, across the board from all the premiers on, on those specific deals, because people like Danielle Smith, who's going to election in May, may think, you know what, it's more worth my time to mobilize against this thing and say the federal government isn't doing what they should. But he's also going to, I mean, I think the key political challenge is going to be, can he get Ford and Legault on board? And now everybody might be kind of smiling and say, yeah, look, we're, you know, we're good and we're looking forward to the negotiations, but it's really going to be on the premiers to see what they can get from these bilateral deals. And then, I mean, from the federal government's perspective, if they say, look, if the provinces don't meet the standards and they don't meet the criteria that we've set out, we're going to claw back the money. That's going to get awfully sticky, particularly when every province has its own deal. So you're going to claw back, like the conditions could be different in each province. You're going to claw back in this province for this. You're going to claw back in this province for a whole other thing. Like that's going to be a mess. And then you lose all credibility if you're the federal government in that space as an actor who really wants to help the provinces solve and manage healthcare, that's going to be a mess, right? And so honestly, like this strikes me as 10 years at least of ongoing negotiations with the provinces about how we need more money for X. And as soon as you open the door to different packages for each province, then you're you're never going to settle everything. Like there's, there's never going to be a final deal. We might as well not even say that. It's going to be just ongoing. Well, I guess the thing that I find frustrating about this, and I don't want to say this has only been going on for a week because it's been going on, as you say, for generations now, is define a success with this. Uh, like, yeah. what are they shooting for? I mean, quote unquote, better healthcare. Okay. But what's that mean? Does it mean eliminate wait times? Does it mean eliminate surgical lines? Does it mean, uh, you know, better outcomes? Does it mean uh, fewer diseases? I mean, that, that those are all w wonderful things to shoot for, but you know, how do you measure that success? Exactly. And it's going to look different potentially in each province when each province has a different fiscal capacity and has different overall challenges when it comes to offering healthcare. So like in Nova Scotia, for example, Tim Houston campaigned on everybody's going to get a family doctor. 
But the premier before him, well, two before him, Stephen McNeil, would say, you can't do that. You can't give everybody a family doctor. We need to switch the model to a more collaborative community care model where you, you know, there is some focus and some organization around who's offering your care, but having a family doctor for everybody isn't reasonable. But it also depends on, again, like the the challenges facing that particular province and that population with respect to age, chronic illness, um, you know, income, like all of that stuff. And so I think you're right. Like, how do we actually set a goal so that we can not even just to say we've met it, but even that we're like moving better towards it because there's so many things that seem to be broken now that even, you know, reasonable success on one thing could still leave us very weak on something else. So it's, a, it's I think, a very, very difficult political uh, space to be in. Which is why I guess both the prime minister and, and of course, his cabinet and the premiers on the other side of the table, too, are speaking in generalities because they don't mm-hmm. want to set the bar too high because they, I think in their heart of hearts, they know that, you know, attaining a lot of what we're asking for from these people is is virtually impossible. Uh, and it's going to take a long, long time if they even do make a dent in this. Oh, yeah. And it's it's also human nature for people's expectations and hopes and, you know, to continue to expand. And so, for instance, another piece of this is going to be the pharmacare issue that the NDP want to see solved by the end of the year in the form of a piece of legislation that will bring this this into fruition. And so, you know, when we talk about wait times, family doctors, like you can add to that, we need to fix long-term care, we need to fix diagnostics, we need to do all this stuff. And so I think it does, as you say, right, like leave the politicians in a space where you don't want to promise nothing, because then people are going to get really annoyed. But you don't want to promise too much because are you really going to be able to meet those challenges? And we're, this is all against the backdrop, too, of the escalation of the cost of living and trying to manage the inflation crisis. And so, and then the housing crisis, like it's a, just a, a kind of perfect storm kind of thing that it leaves the governments, I think, um, you know, under a lot of pressure. But also, there, it really seems to me we are in a different space in this conversation on healthcare. And you and I have talked about this before, even though, yes, this is a multi-generation kind of issue. It's like, we are in a different world now where people are like, this is in crisis. Like we are not in, you know, even when we thought things were bad, things are worse now. And so I don't think either government can, you know, say, oh, look, it's the other person's fault. LeBlanc can say that if he wants. It's not, that's meaningless. People are not going to say, oh, you're right. It's all the province's fault and the feds had nothing to do with it. They gave all the money they could. No one's going to buy that. Like everybody's going to be blamed if this doesn't get fixed. Exactly. Laurie, as always, thanks so much for this. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Excellent. Take care, Bill. You too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, I went to the integrity commissioner. He cleared it 1,000%, not 999, 1,000%. But it's really personal. And, you know, this is my daughter's uh, wedding. And I think that's the first time that's ever come out in Canadian history, someone asking about someone's daughter's wedding. But anyways... Uh, Premier Doug Ford with the uh, reaction, I guess, from the integrity commissioner who uh, did some investigation. Uh, it's questionable just how intense the investigation was, but basically cleared the premier and said, no, it's okay. It's okay. You can bring a bunch of developers who are looking to expand into the green belt of the wedding. Uh, just bring your checkbooks, folks. Uh, that seemed to be an intent anyway. Uh, it's a story that's not going to go away anytime soon. And to uh, add some clarity to this, uh, our next guest uh, is going to talk about this and a couple of other things going on around Queen's Park. Uh, she, of course, is Sabrina Nanji, who is the publisher of Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Happy Monday. 
Uh, you too. Uh, the, the premier says that everybody's welcome to his home. I, I don't know that you've had the invitation yet uh, to just pop in anytime you're going to be in the neighborhood, and he's always going to be there. He seems like a congenial guy. Uh, he's, he's, I guess, missing a, a, one of the key factors in this whole thing, though, is that an awful lot of the people were probably his quote-unquote friends, uh, but they paid a lot of money to attend this. And, and what a coincidence that a lot of them are people that are trying to develop, many of them, of course, in that particular part of the green belt that's just been opened up. Yeah, um, I have to confess, I do not have an invite to, to Ford's house personally, but based on what he said, I, I think it'll be okay to go knock on his door and maybe chat him up a bit. Uh, because clearly, <laughs> as you mentioned, this is what developers, uh, as the premier calls them, his personal friends ha have been doing. Um, and so we kind of saw Ford, you know, visibly get agitated about this when he was questioned by reporters on Friday. You know, he pushed back. He said, this is ridiculous. He kept repeating that this is a, a private family situation. You know, his daughter is is not an elected official, of course. And so, um, you know, I, I think that the the key issue, though, that the premier is, is missing is that um, he has been in politics, his family for decades now, and they are, you know, connected. And so this is something that uh, he's had to deal with his whole life. And so he should kind of know better in a sense when it comes to, you know, the optics of this, especially when the ethics commissioner is doing a broader investigation into whether, you know, allegations from opposition critics into whether, you know, developers were, were tipped off about certain parts of the green belt being opened up. The auditor general is also looking into that. And now of course, you know, the premier and his government say that there was no wrongdoing and they welcome these investigations. Uh, I think reporters are, are clearly in the right here to be able to ask questions because as you mentioned you know a stag and doe is designed to raise money for the couple and and so there was an exchange of money here uh you know presumably when you're going to one of these events um and and this is a question not of you know is ford close with these developers or not it's a question of was public policy discussed or, uh, you know, at any factor during these events. And so now the integrity commissioner has cleared Ford for that specific event, but he kind of went there four months after the fact to just make sure everything was on the up and up. So I think, you know, the premier should have, have known better the questions. He might not like to answer them, but I think that they're warranted and, and he should get up there and, and, you know, clarify some things because there are some serious concerns here. Well, yeah, and, and to your point, uh, and I, I think you know the premier's. It's the the. I guess this is the art of of you know evasion here, certainly, uh, but also the art of deflection. This was not about his daughter, I and mean, she's married. I, I, we wish her the best. I hope she has a wonderful life with her husband. Uh, but this, she didn't invite these people. He did, or his you know his his staff did, uh, and and she didn't get the money or whoever was you know the but. And, and the premier knows that. I mean, he knows darn well that this the, the essence of whole, this whole thing is, is these are people that were looking for political favors. They paid a lot of money. We were told, according to some reporting, it was up to $1,000 or more per, per each person. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, a couple of weeks after that, uh, you know, this legislation is introduced that essentially says we're going to move into the Greenbelt where a lot of these people own land. I mean, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you know, what, do you, what would you assume? Yeah. And, you know, politics is a small world. I mean, I there are staffers of all stripes that I would consider, you know, personal friends. It's just we're all engrossed in this world, you know, and uh, how else are you supposed to make friends in a sense? And so I think we can all understand that the premier would have, uh, you know, people in his circles that 
that there uh, could be, you know, some lines crossed there, some overlap. It's just that when, you know, you, I, you would think that he would kind of recognize that he doesn't even want the appearance of a potential conflict of interest in this and that you would make sure everything was, um, you know, at least for, uh, you know, appearance's sake on, on the up and up. And so I think that this has kind of gotten, um, you know, a snowballed a little bit. And I thought it was um, telling because the premier kind of doubled down. He told us that two of his other daughters are tying the knot this summer and he'd be happy to reveal the guest list for that. And I'll sure be holding him to his word on that one. Yeah. And, you know, invite who you want, but uh, I don't necessarily want to see the guest list. I'd like to know how much money they're bringing uh, and, and who they are and, and what influence they might have. And and it's not, this is not on Doug Ford. I know I, I, every time we talk about this, I get emails, oh, you're picking on him. Uh, he's the premier and he's got to know better than, than to, to put something forth like this. Uh, because whether he likes it or not, uh, every elected official, federal, provincial or municipal, uh, is under scrutiny. And and yeah, the bar is set higher than it is for maybe other people, but that's the, that's the nature of the job, isn't it? You're right. You're absolutely right. And I think it's interesting that we're talking about this um, at the same time that another bombshell story came yeah. out uh, with Toronto Mayor John Tory stepping down after having an affair with a, a staffer. And I know that there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what crosses the line um, into journalists reporting on someone's personal life. And I think, you know, if if this was my story that, uh, you know, reporters are sorry, politicians having affairs is, is not necessarily news. And don't get me wrong. There are tons of rumors about politicians of all stripes and, and what they do, you know, behind closed doors. But where it comes, where it becomes a matter of, um, you know, public importance and a, a news story is when it has to do with the job. And obviously, this was someone in Mayor Tory's office. And so that's where it becomes news important to the public. And I, I would say that's where the line is. And so, you know, as much as the premier might not like to answer these questions, unfortunately, he is in the public eye. And that is kind of part of the territory, um, which, you know, his, 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 it's not the first time his family has been in the public spotlight. Uh, we know one of his daughters who, again, you know, is not an elected official, but she has um, made headlines for some of her stances uh, on, on the COVID restrictions and, and she's not a fan of them. And I know, you know, from sources close to Doug Ford that this has been a real tough um, matter for his family too and, and created a bit of a rift. And, uh, you know, his daughter was left out of the Christmas card. And so, you know, unfortunately for Ford, it's, it's just something that's intertwined. Politics is personal and and, uh, you know, when when push comes to shove, you're going to have to answer some tough questions. You are. Let's, let's swing back to, to John Tory. And I, there's an, an interesting relationship, I guess, between Ford and Tory. Uh, John Tory made it well known to everybody that he didn't like Rob Ford as, as the, mayor, the mayor of Toronto. Uh, and then when Ford had to drop out of that mayoral race a few years ago, as you guys remember reporting, uh, it was his brother Doug that jumped in and said, "Well, I'll take his place on the ballot." Well, he, of course, and Tory won that race, uh, and there was an adversarial relationship uh, for them for the, the longest time. But it seems over the last year or two, especially though, Sabrina, they seem to at least you know get along. I don't know if they're buddy buddies. I don't know if Tory got invited to the wedding or not, but but the, the, there seemed to be you know some peace offerings made there. Uh, you're the mayor of the biggest city in this country. That's going to make waves, but it's also going to have an impact on politics and, and provincial um, municipal relations, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And these two um, can help each other out or have helped each other out up until, you know, uh, Tory uh, announced his resignation. I mean, he he got strong mayor powers. He had he had advocated for them at Queen's Park. Ford gave them to him. They both are aligned, um, at least when it comes to housing policy, you know, and so this is why Ford 
uh, or one of the main factors is, as to why Ford, you know, gave Tory um, and the Toronto mayor, these strong mayor powers is because he sees Toronto as being a big piece of that puzzle to fulfill this huge ambitious campaign pledge that they've made when it comes to building housing over the next 10 years. And so this has kind of thrown a whole wrench in, uh, you know, Ford and Ford's plans. Um, he was, you know, getting along okay with, with Tory. They both had mutual benefits here and, 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 you know, they were both gaining, um, policy wise, at least and, and politics wise, uh, at that level. And so now this is kind of, um, thrown the, the Ford conservative at Queen's Park for a bit of a loop and they are um, already making calls, you know, trying to encourage people that they think would be align with their vision, um, especially on the housing file to, to run for mayor. And so one of those names is Stan Cho, the current associate transportation minister and MPP for Willowdale. Uh, they would love to see him take a, take a stab at, at the mayor's job. Um, and even, you know, on the other side of the political spectrum, uh, former MPP, now MP Michael Cotto, um, who has actually like, you know, kind of gotten uh, along with with the Ford conservatives that they've actually kind of been on the same page when it comes to certain policies, despite the fact that he's a liberal. And so there's a lot of um, behind the scenes maneuvering that's happening right now because everyone's wondering who's going to take the mayor's seat because they'll be a very strong mayor and uh, hold a lot of power at City Hall. Well, I'll be looking forward to you reporting on that because there's a lot of name dropping going on. And as you say, initially it was, okay, who on Toronto City Council is going to run? And I'm sure there's going to be some. Uh, but a lot of federal and provincial names are popping up too. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, was down in the next couple of months. As always, Sabrina, thanks so much for this. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Bill. Sabrina Nanji, publisher of the uh, Queen's Park Observer, with a lot of activity going on because of what's going on, not just with the Toronto mayor's position, but, uh, uh, well, some of the investigations. And by the way, just a quick postscript, uh, that's only one of the rulings of the Integrity Commissioner. There are a couple of other investigations ongoing about this, too, and we haven't heard the results of those yet. So uh, that other shoe may drop eventually. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a busy week in uh, the U.S. Capitol uh, with what politics and the uh, possible who's running where for nominations. And then whatever's coming out of the sky these days, uh, the balloons have been a number of them in the last little while, which it seems to have taken up an awful lot of the Biden administration's uh, minds over and thought processes, I guess, over the last few days. To get a handle on what's happening, uh, please to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in uh, the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning. Let's talk about about the balloon situation here. First of all, we talked about this last week. You and I did about the balloon that actually flew right across the country and was finally shot down uh, over the Carolinas. Uh, I guess a lot of us thought, well, that's the end of that. But uh, there have been a number of other settings. One just in, in Tobermory, of course, uh, this past weekend uh, that was shot down. With the other ones, of course, on the Yukon, Alaska coast. Uh, what's what's the latest in Washington? I mean, it, would, do we even know that we're really dealing with the Chinese here? Or has, has there been a, an attempt right now to identify exactly where these are coming from? Uh, a couple of things on that, Bill. Yes, uh, there is a question as to whether this is China. Uh, and the reason that we don't have anything definitive on that yet is because, A, uh, recovery efforts are still underway. And in certain parts, recovery efforts have yet to begin. And that namely includes uh, through the Yukon. This was a really remote area that this uh, object was taken down. And according to uh, Canadian government officials, um, it could take a while to get to 
whatever it was that was taken from the sky, which is going to prolong any information as to what the origins of that object were. Uh, there are some uh, kind of scholars out there or foreign policy experts who are saying, look, there's a real opportunity that this, a real chance rather, that this could be um, Chinese aggression to try and test defense systems. But there is also a real possibility here that it is not China or it's China in concert with another um, adversarial nation to something like the United States and say that something could potentially be uh, Russia or or North Korea or Iran. So there are a lot of opportunities for national security experts and defense officials to be um, kind of navigating. But what that does is leave unsatisfied kind of a number of politicians and the American public who simply are looking for answers. Well, and one of them uh, rather vocal about this was it was Jim Himes. He's actually uh, he's a con- congressman, uh, but a Democrat. Uh, but he's critical of the Biden administration, uh, suggesting that maybe they're not being as transparent about this. Uh, is the suggestion there, Reggie, that uh, that he thinks that the Biden administration knows more than they're telling us? I think that there is a growing chorus of uh, members of Congress, some Democrats, a vast majority Republicans who are saying that the Biden administration is not being transparent enough. But I think that that does not kind of convey the the realities that national security is at risk, uh, the more the sovereign airspace of the United States and that of Canada as well uh, is is violated. And because there is still un clear motives or even what these these apparatus are that are in the air, um, jumping to conclusions or attempting to put information out there without having a full backstory against that could also prove problematic or damaging to the country's security. So I think while the White House is uh, facing criticism for not being vocal enough, we did have the Pentagon coming out last night at 7.15 on a Sunday to give the bit of information that they at least could in regards to the Lake Huron issue and a kind of overall um, understanding of the misunderstanding when they don't have an idea as to what these things are that they are shooting down out of the sky. And to say that they do or to give any other information could backfire on them. Well, and and as I'm sure you've seen, uh, looking over some of the social media things and comments, even from some people in in Washington themselves, in the absence of fact, of course, comes speculation. And there've been all sorts of crazy rumors, you know, that uh, that this could be germ warfare, you know, the, the another virus or pandemic could start. They're going to drop stuff out of the sky, uh, and, and and I suppose you know, imaginations are running wild right now. What's the reaction on the Beltway? Are, are are they nervous about this? Are they scared? Are they angry? I mean, what what what's what's the dominant emotion in reaction to what they've seen? Well, look, there's concern uh, because this is not just posing a risk to general national security uh, of the country. These objects that are being taken out of the sky are now lower and lower from where that initial Chinese balloon was, which was sitting up at 60,000 feet. The incident over uh, over Alaska, the incident over Yukon were in and around 40,000. This uh, incident over Lake Huron was in and around 20,000. So it takes it from a national security and it brings it closer to home with making this a general threat to the civilian population. And that's why there is uh, such a concern here and a more, I guess, scrutinous look at what is happening over um, the country by, you know, relying on NORAD to kind of uh, take a better look or comb through the finer pieces of what they can see on radar. Because look, Defense uh, agencies for decades now have been trying to find overhead 
fast moving objects like missiles or, or fighter jets. They were never looking for these low altitude or mid altitude balloon or, or hovering style objects. So this is now a kind of new critical thinking piece for, uh, for defense officials to say, look, this isn't what we were used to dealing with. We're trying to do this now as best we can in the short amount of time that we've had to get used to it. And it just seems so bizarre, and in, in, you know, to people thinking, "Hey, you know, as you said, given you know the availability of the electronics that they have here, satellites that uh, that are already up there staring down at us, and and they have them, and we have them, uh, that they'd resort to something like this." Uh, and, but we're hearing stories now that, well, the U.S. is floating balloons over China, doing the exact same thing. Have you been able to confirm that, or is the U.S. even commenting on that? So, so look, this is uh, this is China's foreign ministry trying to come out and and claim that the West is launching a smear campaign uh, against Beijing, against the, the Chinese regime, and against China uh, as a whole. The Beijing's foreign ministry was out this morning uh, saying that they have nothing to do with any of these other objects that were taken from the sky, and they still maintain that the initial object shot down off the coast of the Carolinas was a civilian uh, aircraft, even though most defense officials now in the United States and Canada will argue uh, the counter to that. This comment that is now coming out of Beijing that the United States since 2022 has flown roughly 10, um, you know, balloon style objects uh, is being pushed back on uh, with kind of an immediate sense of urgency from the White House National Security Council, who uh, a spokesperson came out just earlier today to say that that is categorically false. Uh, in that this is trying to ha Beijing is essentially trying to 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 shift the blame or turn the page here uh, to, you know, get themselves out of any kind of hot water. But obviously, this is something that that the security, the National Security Council uh, and the Pentagon are going to say, look, everybody has some form of, of spy apparatus, but we are not actively infiltrating your low level airspace. And to say otherwise, China is wrong. But the politics of this, I find interesting. Uh, you've got the Chinese basically saying, hey, the Americans are doing this all the time, and no, that's not us. Uh, on the other side, of course, you've got Putin who's now blaming the Americans for the uh, sabotaging of the uh, the Nord Stream uh, pipelines uh, that were sabotaged some weeks ago. Uh, they've got the, seemingly anyway, uh, an attempt here to, to put the Biden administration on their heels playing defense here. Uh, are the Republicans trying to take advantage of this? Are they talking about security breaches and, and public safety here? I mean, look, this is, this is, this, this is an opportunity. This is kind of that golden opportunity that adversaries uh, are likely looking for to try and find a weak link in the administration. And whether it is China trying to say that the U.S. is violating their airspace or Russia trying to say that the United States is actively involved in some kind of operation to, to sabotage, um, you know, oil pipelines, this forces the administration to put more of their cards on the table to open up more and say, no, then none of this is true. Well, at the same time, it weakens some of the you know, abilities that the administration has had to try and lure in Republicans, weary Republicans, weary members of the Republican base to say that they are doing a good job. Because if a foreign adversary can start shooting holes into, even though they're, they're shooting kind of into, into, to, into air, um, into whatever the administration is trying to do, there are people that will latch onto that. And when you mentioned off the top that there are concerns that maybe some of these balloons or whatever have biochemical weapons in them, that is something that came from and was spoken by Marjorie Taylor Greene in the last mm -hmm. couple of days, which works to create a narrative here that the administration may not be looking out for the American public. And of course, you're going to find adversarial nations that will latch onto that because it allows them to throw it all into an echo chamber. Uh, 
interesting, yeah, that she should comment on that. There's a, a correlation there, obviously, between the attempts she's trying to make to, to discredit the Biden administration and, and probably, in fact, just discrediting herself. Uh, but she's she's a mover and a shaker, and she's being listened to in some Republican circles, uh, which is really deflecting, I guess, a lot of the attention away from where it should be, uh, uh, not just about what's going on with the, 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 the pandemic recovery and the economic recovery, uh, but there's a presidential race coming up in less than two years now. We had the midterms, of course, as, as you told us all about uh, last in November. Uh, but there's a lot of questions, though, Reggie, about who the, the, the Republican nominee is going to be. Uh, Donald Trump is, is maybe gone, but he's certainly not forgotten and still seems to wield an awful lot of power within the Republican Party. Uh, and then you've got the news, as you reported earlier, uh, that, uh, that Mike Pence now has been subpoenaed by the special prosecutor. Uh, figuring he's got a lot of inside information about not just about maybe misplaced documents, but what went on on January the 6th right now. I guess the question everybody's asking, though, Reggie, is he going to testify? Um, that is that's a that's a huge question. And it could be a, you know, a, a difficult question for him to try to answer. You're right. We are now kind of into the very early throes of the 2024 uh, campaign. Uh, and with that, we are still waiting for somebody to come out and say that they will be the challenger to Donald Trump. Now, on news this morning, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is likely going to be somebody who throws their name into the hat. Uh, and there's they have tens of millions of dollars already in a war chest. So this could pose the first real contender to Trump. But for someone like Mike Pence, who is mulling uh, a run, the fact that he has been subpoenaed about information for January 6th from the special counsel investigating that, this could pose problems, number one, if he decides to delay responding. If he tries to slow walk this into the campaign, it could then weigh on his campaign when he is in the middle of um, you know, his attempt to try and gain the Republican nomination. If he ignores it, that could pose legal problems for him. If he complies with it, that could pose problems for the base to say, well, look, we can't trust you because you're now going up against Donald Trump. Mike Pence has now find, found himself in an almost no-win situation at a time when he's trying to say, look, I'm that last bastion of kind of true American conservatism that I can try to bring the White House back to where it should be. He now finds himself facing a decision that could ultimately cost him his political career. Well, especially because I, we've seen that he's made attempts to try to separate himself from Trump over the last uh, couple of years, really. Uh, but if he were to testify and, and say what we think he is going to be allowed to say, uh, he's severing that tie. And I don't know if, if that's going to be smart politics for him, because as we say, there are still a lot of Trump supporters uh, within that Republican caucus. Absolutely. Uh, and we don't know if, if Mike Pence is going to be someone who tries to assert executive privilege to say, look, the conversations that I held with the president are covered by privilege and they can't be released to the public. Now, that's obviously something that will ultimately have to make its way through the courts because it's not tested in this country to whether a former president can assert executive privilege. But by using that, at least it would placate some of the base to say, look, I'm trying to do what I can to keep the integrity of the Oval Office, you know, regardless of what shambles it was in during the administration. He's trying to keep that integrity intact by saying, look, I will try executive privilege. And if it's overthrown and he is then forced to testify, it gives him an option to say, well, look, I did my best, but I was compelled legally to do so. So he may be in a gotcha situation by the Justice Department, but he will attempt to try and work this to say, I tried to protect the former president. I tried to protect the presidency. But at the same time, I also tried to protect my own ambitions. 
You mentioned Tim Scott probably going to run for the Republican nomination. Uh, Nikki Haley's name has been floated. As a matter of fact, uh, speculation I saw over the weekend that she may actually announce sometime this week. Again, another former Trump ally, former uh, ambassador, of course, to the United Nations for the Americans. Does she try to embrace the, the Trumpites in the party, or are they are they really trying to separate themselves from that past administration? Well, I mean, look, it's interesting that Nikki Haley has announced that she is going to potentially run because she had originally said that she won't run against former President Trump. And now here we are with some dominoes starting to line up that she'll kick over and say, well, look, I'm going to try to get in. I think there's an opportunity here for Republicans to say, look, I can embrace bits of Trumpism, but I don't need to embrace the former president himself. And I can take his message or his his um, you know ability to try and move the, the base and I can run with that on my own. It's, you know, We'll have to see if she's going to be if she announces if she's successful in distancing herself enough while at the same time keeping those ties, because, look, Donald Trump is still a de facto leader within that party. And it is essential to not completely cut him out of the picture. Otherwise, you risk turning off that vast part of the base that still wants Trump or Trumpism to be in the White House. So Republicans are moving very Carefully, it's a delicate dance to avoid Trump while at the same time embracing him. I think the big one to watch will be Ron DeSantis. How does he completely remove himself from the president in doing so in a way that is going to tell the base, well, look, you can come with me because I might be a little bit Trump light. I don't have to have him with me or talk about him or be near him, but I could kind of be like him without him being around. This is going to be an interesting time to watch how Republicans remake, remold, reshape a party that doesn't really kind of exist in any kind of cohesive circle anymore. Exactly. It's going to be a big week down in Washington. We'll be watching, of course, for your reporting on Global National through the week. Reggie, thanks for this. Have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, uh, Global's guy in Washington, of course, covering some of the incredible events that are happening there in the nation's capital. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.